You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. Shai Agassi is a graduate of the Technion Israel Institute of Technology. He is a serial entrepreneur in the software space, having started several companies in Israel and top-tier software, which was headquartered headquartered in California and then acquired by SAP in 2001. Since that time, Shai rose through the ranks at SAP and most recently was the president of the Product and Technology Group until he resigned a month or so ago to pursue his interest in clean energy and climate change. In 2005, Shai was also selected to be a member of the Young Global Leaders Forum uh, of the World Economic Forum at Davos and in this context he proposed converting an entire country to an electric fleet of vehicles. Since, this, since, this, the, since that time this idea has gained a lot of traction in high places in governments especially in Israel and hopefully Shai will be able to tell us more about the status of this ambitious initiative as it stands today. So with that I'll hand over the floor to our speaker Shai. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. Very much. So. So if, if, if you're wondering what the dan what's the dan I was the microphone holder for Luba. Thank you very much for inviting me here, and thank you for uh, all you coming here. Um, I'm not sure uh, why we're now broadcasting this. Uh, one reason could be because I'm prone to say things that really get me into trouble, and uh, and given the fact that I just left SAP, um, and they still give me an office space, I'm not sure if uh, everything I'll say today, basically in the Q&A, would be appropriate. Um, or was it the energy part that we didn't want to uh, go too much in details? But um, we'll hopefully make it available at some point in time, right? Um, so I'll give you a, a brief background of where, where I've been through and sort of some of the stories. And uh, I was told to tell you about the, the, the good parts and the hard parts. And, uh, and then open a lot of time for Q&A because somebody told me that this is a very knowledgeable crowd. Some of you have been through 20 classes. Um, and my question was, if you've been here 20 times, why do you keep coming again? Um, so um, I was a serial entrepreneur uh, that did uh, multiple startups in peril. So I don't know if it's a serial or parallel entrepreneur, but I did uh, started four companies between the years of 1990 and 1992, um, all of them in Israel and all of them with my dad. I recruited my dad out of uh, um, a very large high-tech company. Um, and so I can tell you that I'm probably one of the only guys in the world that can say that he recruited his, I recruited my dad four times and I fired him twice. Um, and he still loves me, at least he tells me that. Um, we, all four companies were in all kinds of different areas, but um, all of them were based in Israel. And then one of them was a shadow writer. We wrote software for other software companies that didn't know how to write software. And we sort of gotten through larger and larger entities and, um, and the last one was uh, a fruit company here in the Bay Area in Cupertino. Um, and Apple saw um, software that we did for another company and asked us if we could come over in 1995 and, uh, and build a, uh, an educational operating system um, for Apple. And 1995, to reset your, your minds, is sort of mosaic 0.9. Uh, we come back here. Uh, we, we proposed this crazy idea of building software that will connect schools with homes using something called an internet browser. And some genius at Apple 
ran research that projected that internet browser penetration at homes will be about 16% by the end of the decade, and so we got canned. <laughs> um, so 1996, we, uh, I get a bunch of guys here. We were thrown out of Apple. My dad calls me up and says, okay, you're coming back home, right? I said, no, if Apple could be so dumb, and, uh, and I'm an Apple aficionado, so don't take it wrong, but if Apple could be so dumb as to cancel this project and make $12 billion a year, I'm staying here. I'm going to do really good. <laughs> um, and so we stayed here, and over the next three months, um, I built a, a portfolio of, of contracts with, uh, with five different companies. Um, totaling in, in, in orders, so sort of a booking of about $5 million for a company that spent $2.5 million a year. So we had about two years' worth of run rate. And then on some uh, great Wednesday afternoon, uh, the, the phone rings, and uh, one of the five contracts was canceled. So CEO of the company calls me up and says, sorry, we had a change of mind. Board decided that we can't go into this project. Cancel that project. Wednesday afternoon, comes by the, and the evening comes by and the second contract was canceled and Thursday comes in the morning and the third one was canceled and Thursday afternoon the fourth one was canceled and they guarantee me they never talk to one another. And on Friday, the phone rang again and I just didn't want to pick it up because I knew what's going to happen. It was sort of, it was there. And when I picked up the phone, the, C uh, the CEO of the fifth company is on the phone and I said, don't say a word. He says, no, no, no. I said, don't say a word, I'm coming down to LA, we'll meet. He says, you don't have to come down, we're canceling the contract. And sure enough, in 48 hours, $5 million independent contracts with very, very high um, beta between them. So there's very, very high variance between them. We're canceled on us. And we had two weeks worth of time to, uh, to pay cash for the employees. Um, I'll tell you what happened after that at the end of the story. But... Um, we somehow regrouped, and I'll tell you that story in, in, in a few minutes, but um, we were able to recapitalize the company, um, raise a million dollars, and, um, and moved on from there, uh, regrouped here in California. And a year and a half later, I sold the company for $110 million. That's the true Silicon Valley American dream, if you want. I was asked to stay on board as a CEO of, uh, of that company, of the subsidiary of that company that I sold. I stayed as CEO for uh, three more years and, uh, and got asked so, and, and got acquired again. So we, I sold the company twice, legally. Um, and the second time we sold it for $400 million. And I was asked to stay again. So I was, the second time was sold to SAP and I was asked by the CEO, the chairman of SAP at the time, Hasso Platner, to stay on board and run a technology subsidiary called SAP Portals. Um, and just as a gift, I was given two other entities that they didn't know what to do with. And so suddenly from 250 people, um, all cohesive, sort of united, we got three different teams in three different locations. And I was asked to do a merger. Um, and I've never done a merger in my life before. So I read a great book the night before. It was called Five Frogs on a Log. I don't know if anybody here read Five Frogs on a Log? It's a fantastic book. Buy it just in case you have to do a merger. Um, <laughs> The main premise is if you have five frogs on a log and one decides to jump, how many frogs are on the log? Anybody knows? What's that? Five. Deciding and acting is a very, very different thing. And that's what happens 
during post-merger integration. So keep that in mind, five frogs on a log. And um, I didn't know how to do mergers, so I, I basically drove, it's called Mexican driving. I don't know if you know how you drive in Mexico. As you approach a, a, uh, the, this sort of city center, you close your eyes and you just go through. Um, so I closed my eyes and I just went through. And uh, we sort of grew to about 1,000 people. And then I was asked to run another subsidiary for SAP. And it became 1,800 people. And then I was asked to bring that back into SAP. And we built a whole new strategy. Um, around um, SAP not being just an applications company, but also being a middleware company. It's called SAP NetWeaver and XApps, and we built that over the last, uh, better part of the last five years. So April of 2002, I was asked to come back into SAP and became board member of SAP, which was in and of itself unique. SAP, as you know, is headquarters in, headquartered in Germany, and you had to be a, a they were my friends, so I can't tell you. You had to be 50-plus-year-old white male speaking German to be in the board at that time. And suddenly there was this 33-year-old young Israeli who didn't speak German um, in the board. And that was a, an exhilarating experience. Um, I started by running a small part of the, of, of the development. And over the years, I got bigger and bigger and bigger responsibility for less and less and less compensation. So I must have been in retail. And... Um, in 2005, I was, uh, was asked to run all development for the company. So I ran an organization that had about 9,000 engineers in 70 labs around the world, producing 60 new products um, every year, serving about 30,000 customers around the world. Uh, billion and a half dollar in spend in R&D um, for that same young kid who came to California 10 years ago and was very, very close to uh, shutting down the business um, overnight. And I ran this thing for a couple of years. I was told somewhere in the process that I'm going to be the next uh, co-CEO of the company um, and came to a decision in January of this year that um, if I end up 50 years looking back at my life and all I did was software, of which 15 years was yet another version of SAP, I would be very, very disappointed with myself. And so I decided to quit and go do something more impactful. And I'll tell you a bit about, Sanford actually played a significant role, at least a Stanford professor played a significant role in, uh, in making that decision. And so today I'm unemployed. You're all looking at an unemployed um, young man um, who just leaped into the void and uh, spends life sort of oscillating between moments of exhilaration and moments of sheer fear as to what it means uh, to do what I'm trying to do. Um, I'll share with you a couple of points um, from that road so that you can understand just some lessons. And if you get nothing out of it, at least you get what you paid for in coming here. Um, if, if you get something out of it, that's great. Um, but I, I sort of gather, I usually have like 70 different points, which I one day will put in the book. But um, all of them sort of mirror what happens in nature, in science, in business. And the first one is, is the distance is measured the same way no matter where you look at it from, top down or bottom up. The distance between success and failure is that tiny. You, you just don't know it, right? The guys who have been complete and utter failures at their startups could have been just three days away from being superstars. They just didn't know it, but they could have just dug in and walked one more mile and made it. Remember that night where 
we had all the contracts um, disappear on us. Um, I called a friend, used a lifeline. And um, and good friend of mine worked at Apple. Um, he worked on, he was the program manager for the first iMac, the blue one. Um, and, um, and he said, hey, don't worry about it. You know, a friend of mine sold, uh, was on the um, management team of Stratacom, was the first deal Cisco did. Remember when Cisco did, did big deals and they were $5, five billion deals? Um, so he sold. He, he, there's a bunch of guys, they have money, they don't know what to do with it. Show him your stuff, he'll invest in it. And just like that, angels sort of showed up. And within three or four days, we had 13 people come into a meeting and presented the company. And everyone said, oh, you know, yeah, we'll put $50,000, we'll put this, we'll put that. And one of them said, oh, my, my uh, brother sold his company, and, uh, and he would love to, to see this. So he in, invites his brother. The first thing the brother tells me is, I'm never going to work with Israelis. Um, that's a great start. Uh, and we go through this thing, and then at the end of the hour and a half, his brother looks at me and starts mumbling, I love golf, I love golf, I love golf. He, he's been retired four times. Every time he... Start a company, built a company, sold a company, goes playing golf. <laughs> and he gets sort of to scratch handicap, and he gets onto another company. And he works, 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 and sells it. So he's been on the six-month golf hiatus. And we meet, and he calls me up that same evening and says, how much money do you still need? Eh, about $150,000 short. He says, okay, I'll, I'll do that. I'll get you that. I have two conditions. Uh, I'll be the CEO of the company for the next 18 months. I'll put whatever money you need. I get 10% of the company. And the second condition, you move the company to Monterey because I live in Pebble Beach. <laughs> and so I sort of looked at the phone. We were about to die, right, three days ago. And I, I let me think about it. Yes. <laughs> sure, we'll drive to Monterey every morning. <laughs> Um, the guy is David Blumstein, used to be my partner for five years. We actually partnered for five years. He was my mentor for, uh, my second mentor. My dad was my first one. Uh, David was my second mentor. Um, David, before that, created distribution software. He was one of the founders of Maricel, then became the guy who ran Ingram and became Ingram Micro D. Uh, he ran Norton. Remember Norton? The guy. Uh, and, um, and he came on board and taught me everything I need to know. Um, and it was an unbelievable mentor. More than $150,000. I got five years worth of uh, great, great mentoring um, that you just can't buy. Um, and I got a great friendship, which you can't find very, and it's really, really hard to find uh, in life. Um, and so the distance from that day, I mean, we could have just died before that, but the distance from that day to getting the acquisition, that was um, August of 96, and we shook hands on the acquisition in April of 1998. We shook hands on, on April of 1998. It's another funny story. Um, we built a technology called um, hyper-relational navigation. So think of what you do on a browser with a click. We could also do with dragging and relating, combining entities so you can do multiple navigation. It doesn't really matter. But it was sort of um, information at your fingertips that Gates talked about forever. And I was asked to come and do a uh, demo at a keynote with, um, with Bill Gates on stage. And um, the night before, Gates unveiled um, Windows 98, or I think it was called Chicago, in Chicago, and it crashed. 
So he came in. He was really pissed. Um, and so we had no time to discuss, no time to talk, no time to chat. And we had only one, um, one rule, that because we didn't practice, he can't ask questions. Uh, so I'm demo three. There are four guys on stage. And, uh, and I didn't know how important the demo was. 6,000 people in the audience. But um, as Gates comes on stage, my software, which is sort of pre-alpha, crashes. <laughs> Not a good day to crash. So I'm, I'm looking at this thing, and the machine is just totally frozen. So I kneel in, and I press the server button, and the whole thing just restarts. Demo 2 looks at me and says, what are you doing? I go, oh, forget about it. It's good luck. And his hand on the mouse goes. <laughs> While demo three is booting, demo four lost video. So we have a guy walking behind us, right underneath our feet, trying to reconnect video to his server. And they tell me on the earpiece, take longer time. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Long story short, we do the demo. Gates sees for the first time information at your fingertips. And he's just shocked. The audience sees him going, but he can't say a word. So he goes back and he, every time he goes back. Our booth was so full that the owner of the company that we've demoed it with, Jan Bonn, was the Bonn conference, it was competitor to SAP, sees our booth full and his booth empty, comes to me and says, how much for the company? And as a result of that one demo that could have crashed or could have been a great success, we sold the company for $110 million effectively shaking hands that same evening. So that's, you just never know. It could have been a disaster, and it could have been a, uh, a great story. Um, the other thing is that that's part of the story that I told you about before on, on uh, the importance of money. And everybody asks me the same question, especially now that I quit, and say, well, what, what does money mean to you? And I continue to say the same thing. Money is like air. If you guys go into business in order to make money, you're already in the wrong business. If you think about the meaning of money, you don't sense air. See, there's a lot of air around us right now. It's really hard for us to sense it. When do you sense air? When you got no air. Right? When you're in a vacuum, you will appreciate air. Same thing happens with money. If you'll, sense, you'll sense money when you don't have it. We sensed money on, those, on that evening, the first time. Because I had two weeks worth of salaries to pay that evening after I had to bargain a lot. I basically put all my money into, uh, into the company that night and bargained with my dad that we'll keep on going for two more weeks. Now I went out the window the, on the balcony and there was a full moon. And I told myself, I got enough money for the moon. The moon goes out, I go out. And that's when you count the money. Not in any other day. It doesn't matter afterwards. There's, there's only one guy that will be really, really happy when you make a lot of money. That's your private banker. Because after a certain amount, you can't spend it, but he makes more money every time you make more. So think of money as, as, your, um, as your time uh, measurement. And think of yourself as walking in a desert. See, op entrepreneurs are optimists by nature. We will walk into a desert with half as much water as we need to cross the desert, knowing that we will find more water some way on the path. And it's not always true. Right? You always think you can do it all with less money than what, you, than what you really need. And how many venture capitalists are in the audience here? That's their business model. 
They know that you're an optimist. As a matter of fact, they cater to it. And they're great friends of yours. Throughout the process, they have water. And you don't. <laughs> we went out to raise money after that night when we got our company in order and we got the first round of angels and we went out to raise capital. And we went out to talk to the best VCs in the Valley. Some of them, I actually met some of them yesterday and we're still great friends. And they've offered me $6.6 million for a third of the company. Now, why do we get 6.6? Because we sat in front of a board and we said, how much money do we really need? And David said, you're an optimist. I said, 3 million max. We said, okay, 6.6. We'll, we'll do a 6 for your optimism and 0.6 for my correction. <laughs> and so we go out and we talk through this thing and 6.6 .6 million and we get an offer from VCs and then one of my angels comes in and says, I, uh, I'm, a CTO, I'm the new CTO for a company called Bond or CIO for a company called Bond. He said, Bond is like SAP, only they're Dutch. <laughs> and, and he said, could, could, I have a meeting with Jan Bond, but I have nothing to tell him. Would you go and take my meeting? And I said, sure, why not? I flew out to Holland, went to meet with Jan Bond, and David gave me one instruction. So we go into that room. We have term sheets with two great venture firms. Do not talk about investments. This is only an OEM deal. It's a relationship. It's nothing about investments. Don't, don't destroy the deal we've already made. And term sheets are there. We're supposed to sign on Friday. And I go into the meeting with Jan Bon, half an hour meeting, presentation, demo, everything. And he looks at his guy and says, what do you think? And they also, yeah, it looks good. He says, okay, leave the room. They leave the room, and he looks at me and says, how much for the company? And I said, no, you know, we're, we're not looking for money. We just have term sheets. He says, I know you're raising capital with some of the VCs. I said, yeah, how much money are they giving you? I said, 6.6 .6 for a third of the company. She looks at me and says, 8 million. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, we're now already, 10 million. <laughs> I said, no, seriously, we, are, we already got 12 million. <laughs> and I said, no, please, you know, understand, I'm not here to raise capital. He goes to a board and puts one, four, and says, you've got one hour, and he leaves the room. Now I've got 14 staring at me. 6.6, .6 and I'm really scared of David. And, and so I call and talk, and I go, David, what do we do? He says, you know, what do you mean, what do you do? You take 14. Of course you take 14. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have a very high integrity factor, so I, I can't do that. I, I gave these guys my word. I'm not going to take somebody else's money and, and leave them out. I, I'm not going to do that. So I come back in the valley. It's Friday. And one of the VCs calls me up and says, you know, the stock market went down 10% this week. We decided to bring it down from 6.6 .6 to 6. Same share of the company. And I said, thank you very much. You saved me. He said, what happened? I said, well, you know, we got an offer from Bond for $14 million. He says, come to our office. We'll sign the 6.6 .6 right now. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 no. Now, now I've got my, my conversation. Now I understand what the rules of the game are. And we took $14 million. Now, the, the, the punchline is the following. Remember, we only needed three. Now we have 14. What do you do with $14 million? It's like you're going into the desert with a whole truck of water. We raised 14. We raised another 10. We raised another 18. We raised another 10. We spent all that money. We grew the company, and you never know. You raise that money. You, you find what to do. You get another business opportunity. You get an 
But at the end of the cycle, we raised something like $50 million. We got $400 million back for the investors, so it wasn't a bad deal for them. But with $3 million, we couldn't do a thing. Who would have been roadkill with $3 million? And that's what you have to factor in. When you go and put your plan together, factor that in. You need 10, you really need 100. Factor that in. Now, one of the things that we've done very well is we've used gravity centers to pivot ourselves. And sort of, I don't know if you know how NASA sends spaceships now into, into really long, long space. They don't anymore shoot it right in the, in the direction. What they do is they send it right next to um, a body, uh, a celestial body, and it, and it sort of swings through. It, it uses the gravity center of that body to sort of come in and do a, a swing to another place. And there are people who are specializing in that kind of, of spatial calculation, of finding the right orbits to, to sort of shoot elements into the... In. And we did exactly the same thing. We sent ourselves to an orbit around a small subsidiary, a small company when we were really tiny. Right? When we had 10 employees, we worked for a company that was, for us, a giant. It was a company in Laguna Hills, California. It was in California. We were in Israel. And they had 120 employees. And so we went out and we worked with them, and we felt like, wow, this is an amazing opportunity. And then we worked around Apple. And Apple, yeah, Apple didn't send us in the right direction. And then, <laughs> Um, and then we worked with Bond, and Bond sort of gave us tremendous momentum that threw us into SAP. And SAP gave us momentum, and that threw us into the next. Every time we sort of figured out the orbit. And so you need to figure out which giant you're sitting on. You're sitting on giant shoulders as a startup. You're leveraging their gravity, because the one thing you don't have is a startup. And that's the beauty of what I did all my life afterwards at SAP. You don't have gravity. I mean, at SAP, you basically say, the industry is going to look like this. And it does, because you say it. I mean, Larry Ellison predicted that the software, the enterprise software industry will consolidate. Duh. <laughs> you know, you're going to buy everybody. Of course, you can predict it on day one, that it will consolidate. When you have gravity, you can define a market. You can decide what will happen. When you're small, you can't. So you really need to figure out how to leverage these big partners to throw you in the right direction. At the same time, you really have to be careful, just like NASA. Don't miss on the calculations, because you can crash into a planet, and nobody would know. We, we started going around Bonn, and Bonn imploded. And around that implosion, we could have just gone into small orbit and then died. And our ability to escape velocity from Bonn and reach SAP was critical. It happened in a very interesting way. And that's another lesson in life. That's Newton's third law. Every action will have an exact opposite reaction in the same magnitude. And that's what happens in partnerships. Partnerships are exactly like that. For everything you will do to your partner, the partner will do something to you. We worked with Bond. We invented something called a corporate portal, enterprise portal. And by that point, we had three or four products working together. We built a lot of good faith. And I came to the president of Bond, and I said, you know, let's, let's go build this product. I defined it. We put a, an, a market research document around it. We shared it with him. And, uh, and at the end of that uh, meeting, we shook hands, and we went out and built the product. We came back a few months afterwards, and I said, here's the beta version. Here's the first release. And on that meeting, he basically came back and said, you know what? We decided to go build it on our own. I said, how could you do that? 
we had an agreement. We shook hands. We said, yeah, you know, there's no contract. Life, life is such, you're going to have to grow up and figure it out. And I said, that's, that's not the way to do things. I, have, I, give, I gave you the definition of the product. So, you know, we could have come up with that definition ourselves. I flew back from Holland. I picked up a phone, called my friend, said, do you have any relationships at SAP? And he said, yeah, just as a matter of fact, our company works with their CEO. Would you like to meet him? He said, yeah. Two weeks later, we met with Hasso Plattner, CEO of SAP. I would have never gone into that building as a partner of Bond, because Bond is a competitor of SAP. I would have never walked into that building as a partner of Bond. Met with Hasso, and Hasso said, something is not feeling good about it. If we'll do something with them, they'll take it to Bond, and they'll show it to Bond. And so one of his assistants told me that. And I said, what, are you stupid? I've already showed it to Bond and told him the whole story. He says, oh, so they really screwed you up? Said, yeah. OK, now we can have, we'd be happy to work with you. <laughs> and as a result of that, we went out and worked with SAP, created the corporate portal, which became the enterprise portal, became a, a significant part of NetWeaver, which is a billion-dollar business now for SAP. Now, I'm not saying that we killed Bond or we made SAP successful at that time, but it's a force counterforce. You can't do that when you're big, and you can't do that when you're small. So you'll remember, if you work at a large corporation and you're in charge of business development, honesty is your only currency. And if you work in a small company and you're looking out to work with the, the big guys, tell them the story so that they're afraid of the bad karma that will happen to them if they break that, that, um, that relationship. Um, Around that time, we had another thing, and that's another rule that I, I, I don't know how many of you have uh, learned phys physics 101, but pendulum swings define everything in, inside corporations. And that's a relationship that you'll have with your employees or you as an employee when you work uh, in a company. Around the time that we, Bond was sort of starting to spiral down, I took 10 of my best friends. We went on a vacation. And every one of them, bar none, came to me. They all worked for me. And they all came to me and said, we're really, really worried. The company is really dying. And I said, you, you're out of your minds. The company is in the best shape it's ever been. And we were in the Caribbean. They thought I'm using some chemicals to enhance my um, general sense of, of happiness in the world. But um, the thing is that we saw two things. Employees see, see kinetic energy. See, they sit on that ball, and they see the, the, the speed of the ball. CEOs see potential energy. It's very hard to measure potential energy. But the potential energy plus kinetic energy is a constant. And so you have to remember that there is a big discrepancy between those two perceptions of the world. I saw the beginning of the relationship with SAP. They saw the end of the work we're doing with Bond. They didn't know where all the people were going to to create momentum because the momentum was going into potential energy. Now, what holds this thing and allows you to go to higher and higher and higher energy sums is the string. And the string are your people. The stronger your people, the more combined energy you can get to. But that's the physics of startups. It's all summarized in that formula of pendulum swing. Remember one thing, though. The people are sitting on the ball. It's a very scary proposition, <laughs> no matter what happens, because it goes up, it goes down, they, see all, they, they sense the wind. And when it stops for a brief second, when you change direction, 
is the scariest moment for them because they don't know if it's stopped or if it's about to break and fall apart. If you've ever seen a pendulum break, it really goes downhill from there. So keep that in mind when you're, when you're managing it. Um, the last thing I'll teach you about startups, or share with you, I'm not teaching you anything, share with you about startups is uh, the, the first question everybody's asking. Where should I focus on? I keep getting that same question. What, what's the next thing? What, what should I do? And everybody's so focused on the previous thing. How many people here have a business plan that they want to start that has Web 2.0 in it? Seriously, you, don't, don't be ashamed. It's okay. You're good. See, every conversation I have right now is about Web 2.0. Oh, you got a Web 2.0 this and a Web 2.0 that. And I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm saying if it's already in Wired, it's already too late. If you've ever been to uh, Hawaii, right, and you sit in Maui on the shore, the energy guys are leaving. We're going to talk about energy in three minutes. But um, <laughs> if you've ever been on the shore in, in, in Maui, you'll see surfers. And if you've seen surfers, none of them catches the back of a wave. They all start pedaling before the wave comes, and they catch the wave, and the, with that wave they reach shore. Nobody ever caught the back of a wave to get to shore. Because the energy has already happened. Now, it's really scary. You gotta, catching waves is not easy. But you're making a bet. You make the bet a bit ahead of everybody else getting there. All the great companies here in the valley started in downturns. Why? Because there wasn't an alternative cost to going on and starting a great company. You couldn't get a job anywhere else. You couldn't get anything financed. So your idea was great. Losing a job is really, really hard. It's really scary. So leads me to my last episode of losing a job. I lost a CEO position. I was, I was told, you're going to be the CEO, next CEO of SAP. It's a large company. It's a Fortune 100 or Fortune 500. I don't know where, which number we're in. Um, and you've got to step back and say, not interested. Thank you very much. And I did that three times because they didn't believe me the first time. Um, and the reason I did it is, is, uh, is a fairly simple um, story. I was asked a really annoying question when I joined the Young Global Leaders, the World Economic Forum. Um, they ask you a question that you should not, I think it should be disallowed to ask to people between the ages of 37 and 41. What are you going to do to make the world a better place in 15 years? And it's an extreme accelerator of midlife crisis. <laughs> because you sort of start seeing yourself 15 years out, looking back at, you know, from that imaginary point back into what you've done for 15 years. And it really scares you that what you're doing today, in most cases, is what you're going to do for the next 15 years. And you know, a lot of guys in midlife crisis get a fast car. I need a lot of them. <laughs> um, and a lot of people go out and try and define what's the next thing they're going to do. And so what I did is I, I ran a Jim Collins on my life. So Jim Collins is a professor here, um, and he defines this, these three circles that you need to sort of coincide in order for you to be, I, I believe, to be happy. Um, one of them is a question about what your passion is. What are you really passionate about? Because if you're not passionate about something, it's really hard to wake up in the morning and go do it 
every day for 15 years. And so I asked my question, what am I really passionate about in life? And I came back with a set of things that was totally different than just beating Oracle or just be building yet another version of software. I was born in Israel. I feel a huge debt to Israel. I was very passionate about Israel. I mean, I get really annoyed when I hear news, bad news coming from Israel. So that means I'm passionate. I'm very, very passionate. After seeing Al Gore on stage live here at Stanford about climate change. And I'm very passionate about making sure my kids know what to do with their lives when they grow up. And so I look at these things and I'm saying, okay, what, how do you do something about peace in the Middle East, climate change, and your kids all at the same time? Big passions, right? Huge passions. Second question is, what are you the best at in the world? So I asked that question, what, what really am I best in? And it's not just, I didn't think it was just software. What I'm really good at is taking really big problems and breaking them into a lot of small problems, solving the so small problems or finding people who can solve the so small, and then putting it back together into a full system. I'm a problem solver. And so I said, okay, what technological problem can you solve that affects peace in the Middle East and climate change? And the last question is the economic driver. And I'm not economically driven anymore by making more money. But what I'm economically driven is by making a business that makes a lot of money so that it scales by itself. It's a sort of a self-funding model. So that's the third piece. You put them all together. And I said, if you could find a way to eliminate the need of a whole country off fuel, that would be really cool, especially if you could replicate it. If it was a profitable business to go off fuel. And then I narrowed it down and said, okay, what if you don't go off completely off fuel? What if you go off fuel for transportation? Because that's the main area where we don't find a way to replace today. And that was about two years ago. And I started running this in my mind and I started reading things. I was complete ignorant and I'm just a partial ignorant. And started coming up with all kinds of ideas. And Israel was the perfect place for it. See, how many of you have been to Israel? So there's some partial knowledge here in, in the group. See, in Israel, if your car is, dri is driving outside the boundaries of the country, it's been stolen. <laughs> it's an island. Second thing is, if it's going for more than 100 miles, you're probably driving in circles by now. Which is, by the way, what happened to me the first night I came to Stanford. I didn't know where I was. It was my first night in the Silicon Valley, and I drove in, and I said, I need to get to the 101 or the 280. I'll just drive, and I'll get there. And after running campus drive three times, <laughs> it, at night, I was arrested. <laughs> I stopped by a car, by a cop that basically said, you know you're going in circles? And I said, I'm, I'm, now I do. <laughs> and he escorted me to the 101 South. Uh, but in Israel, it, if you go more than 100 miles, by and large, you've been going in circles. You've sort of been driving up to see your grandma in Haifa, and she's not at home, and you're driving back. <laughs> the third thing, policy is already in place. Israel's got 100% tax on cars, 89% tax on cars, zero emissions, zero tax, and 100% tax on fuel. They don't like fuel in Israel. 
Israelis love new toys. As a matter of fact, that's where digital cell phones were tried the first time. It was the, it's still called the Petri dish of the cell phone industry. Because it was the first time where, um, where cell phones were priced very aggressively to see what happens. And I can tell you what happens. Every Israeli has 2.7 cell phones ringing in every restaurant around the country. It's sort of the experiment that was done, and then the, the cell phone companies just, they drop the Petri dish and walk away, not understanding the implications. And the final thing is, you tell an Israeli that Israel will be the first country to eliminate the use of oil, and they sign up, because they know it's goodness. There is a social geopolitical contract that is very clear to every single member of Israeli society. High tech, low tech, it doesn't really matter. And so I said, why don't we take Israel as an example? And if we can do Israel, and it works, we can create a repeatable model that maybe then works in London. Because London is 7 million people, Israel is 7 million people. And then we can hopefully do it 50 times in China, because we better figure out a model that will work in China. And so we looked at that model, and we came back with an idea that said, let's try and do wide deployment of electric vehicles across a whole country. Not 10, not 100, but 2 million cars. What does that mean? And the model that we were coming up with, and I have to think there's a group of Stanford students that are sitting here that uh, have played also a very crucial role in helping us shape this model, um, is a very interesting one. We actually think that there is a missing entity in the, um, in the automotive industry that would create effectively ubiquity of electrons, ubiquity of charge. Somebody that will guarantee you that wherever you go, you can charge your car. And that will create a model by which the cost of that car would actually be cheaper for you than buying a fuel car, fuel-based car. And if you can do both of these things, and we believe we can, I'm not going to go into too many details because somebody will kill me, um, you can actually get consumers to create pull instead of governments, or companies creating push. And if consumers actually feel that this is a cheaper proposition, not a better proposition, not a greener proposition, but a cheaper proposition, then you get mass adoption. That's the key. In effect, what we're saying is this is a repeat of the first time that oil became useless. I don't know if you know that, but if you chart the price of oil historically, there is a spot where oil was worthless after it was very useful and very expensive. And the first electric appliance to replace oil completely is the light bulb. You see, oil was not discovered in order to drive cars. It was discovered in order to light houses. It was a replacement for whale oil. Kerosene just replaced whale oil. But when electricity came up and was widely distributed, kerosene's prices went really, really low to the degree that it was almost worthless to dig it out of the ground. And then we salvaged the whole industry, and they continued to dig holes in the ground to find deeper and deeper oil since that point. We passed the point where half of the oil in the world has already been dug out. We better figure out a way to stop before we dig out the other half. And the hope is to actually get to that point where we again replace oil, atoms, with electrons. Now, in the first transformation, there were three guys who played a very big, very big role. One of them is Edison, 
The other guy is Tesla. The third guy is Westinghouse. Edison figured out how to make light bulbs, but more important than that, he actually started creating generators and cities, and he put cities on a grid. Only he bet on the wrong technology. Direct current, DC. And his cities were really, really limited in, in, in size. So he could do only very small distance. Sort of like EV1. Great idea, wrong technology, too short distance. The guy who really got it is Tesla. He invented the generator and the motor, effectively. And so he could expand the distance and reduce the cost. And we believe there will be a Tesla in this industry, if it's not Tesla themselves, Tesla Motors. But there will be a Tesla. Somebody will figure out all the necessary pieces in order to build this kind of a car that goes long distance, cheaper cost. What we're trying to play is the Westinghouse role. See, Westinghouse didn't really care about the technology that much. What he cared about is the business model that allowed him to put city after city after city after city, block after block after block of electricity. He bought the patents from Tesla and got it out and deployed. He made Westinghouse Company, which also became CBS, I think, which became Viacom or Paramount or one of those. While Tesla has gotten a lot of doves as friends. But at the end of the cycle, he made the big difference in deployment. He beat Edison. Most people don't remember it today, but he actually beat Edison in his business model and the selection of the system integration that made electricity. And we want to play the the role of a Westinghouse in deployment of cars. And so the choice I had was to stay in SAP, be CEO, do more software, or to go fail in a grandiose way, trying to be second Westinghouse. And, uh, and I leaped into the void. And uh, you'll see my first entry on my new blog after I left SAP was 100 hours after I left. And it says, it's been 100 hours since I've leaped into the void. No thump yet. There hasn't been a thump since then. So either I'm, I've been flying really, really high using SAP's wings, or I figured out how to fly on my own after leaving SAP. Or I'm still going to hit the ground at some point. It's going to hurt really bad. <laughs> but whichever way it is, I gave a class here a year or two years ago a recommendation at the end of my speech, and that was, you're young enough, follow your passion. Don't settle for a job. Find your passion. And I've realized three, four months ago, I'm young enough to take my own advice. And I may not be good enough to be accepted to Stanford, which I wasn't, but <laughs> I may be good enough to take advice at a class at Stanford. So with that, I want to thank you very much, and I want to open to Q&A.